Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now today, we are going to cover our last literary style and apocalypse, apocalyptic literature, and our last book, Revelation. And Lord help us. All right, so we're going to do some, some classroom stuff for a while. Um, for some of you, this is going to be a new approach to Revelation. It's going to be new. That's okay. New, new's okay. I'm asking you to be open-minded, chew on what i got to say, all right? And if you chew on this, if you can stick with me for about 40 minutes of classroom, I promise you that after I take you to the classroom, I'm going to take you to church at the end. Oh, I'm going to take you to church, all right? So we'll get there. Now, Revelation. Yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead, Tyler. This book's different. Revelation is just different. Like, like emo Jimmy Butler different. You know I'm saying? Like this book is just out there. So can you help me please understand what is going on with Revelation? That's my goal today. Now, I have found uh, over the course of my life that uh, there are basically two main categories that people fall in when it comes to Revelation. Which one are you? Uh, There are the ignorers, the people who keep it at arm's length, and there are the obsessors, the people who read everything in life through it. Which one are you? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, no matter which group that you fall in, I'm about to challenge you because I don't think you should be either. And again, I'm just asking you, keep an open mind with me. So I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a context where we were, we were obsessors. Who are, who are the obsessors? Well, they are the people that are certain that they have decoded the book of Revelation. They've got it. Uh, they know when the world is going to come to an end. Ask them. They know. Um, and conveniently, it is always within their lifetime. Uh, inconveniently, not one prediction about that has ever come true, but... Conveniently, they think they know. They also know who the beast is. Conveniently, it is their least favorite politician. <laughs> Watch people co-opt Revelation next, this, over this next year. Watch them. Inconveniently, again, not one of those predictions has come true. They've got all the other signs and symbols in Revelation figured out and how they connect to our time. They can tell you right now how the Hamas and, and Israel war uh, connect, connects to the end of times and why the world is going to end soon. Uh, and they also know about this thing called the rapture. Uh, now, raise your hand if you ever heard of the rapture before. Okay, so let's, let's yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, will you show us the verse in Revelation real quick that talks about the rapture? Uh, well, unfortunately, I can't because that word is never in Revelation. Uh, it's actually only in the Bible once. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And when it is used, it's not used in the way that many of you think it's used. Uh, it's actually used to talk about us going to meet Jesus and bringing him back to earth. Not, but anyways, that's for 1 Thessalonians when we get there someday. Rapture's not in Revelation. But, but people think they know the rapture. They, they, they know that we're going to get suctioned out of here. There'll be seven years of tribulation. You've heard of this, right? Where all the evil people are left and they fight each other. And there's World War III in the Valley of Armageddon. Has anybody ever been to Armageddon before? 
That's how it's pronounced. You're laughing. That's how it's pronounced. It's Armageddon, right? We call it Armageddon in English, but it's an actual valley in the Holy Land called Harmagedo, where Israel historically had lots of their conflicts in the Old Testament. And I'll go ahead and tell you, while Revelation says that the valley will be full of blood up to our, what is it, waist or, or chest, I've been in that valley, it's impossible. There are too many channels out of it. But there's Harmagedo, there's killer insects, there's plagues, there's war, there's microchip implants with the mark of the beast. Uh, you know, did anybody get the vaccine? I'm because... No, I'm just playing, right? If you do have it, I got it. I mean, we got to get the mark of the beast too. So it's just like, you know, but that theory was circulating. It was circulating. You remember, it was circulating. Now, I'll go ahead and say this, this reading of Revelation is what I would call the crystal ball reading of Revelation. And I mean this with all due respect. There's people who read it this way uh, that are good people. They're good Christians. Uh, this is not something that I would divide over uh, with anyone. Uh, but I do, I do believe it's a mistaken reading of the text. I want to show you that today. Revelation is not a primarily future-telling book. It's not a decoder ring of when Jesus is coming back. And we should know that because Jesus himself said that no one, not one, not even the angels, not even the son himself, know the day or the hour, do they? Revel, uh, Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. So this should be indicator number one that, that maybe we're approaching it the wrong way. Now, I just wanna give you my background. I grew up in a church that did the crystal ball reading. So I know all of your exegetical jumps, if that's you, like I know them. I was raised in them. I read all the left behind books. One of the authors came and spoke at our church. I remember Nick Cage flying a raptured plane, all right? I like him better saving the Constitution personally, but <laughs> Thief in the Night, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. Like, I know it all. When I, <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, we, uh, we, we didn't go to a haunted house. We went to a rapture house. Anybody ever been to a rapture house before? Oh, Lord help us. So you go to, it's, this is what a rapture house is. It basically, it's way scarier than a haunted house first, okay? You go in the house and it actually simulates that the rapture has happened. And I mean, it's terrifying, man. Like, you know, there's just graphic violence, plagues, images of hell. I'm a, it, when I was in high school, me and my buddies, it scared the hell into us. And when you get to the end, when they appealed to you, and said, hey, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Which they do at rapture houses. We got reconverted just to make sure the first one took. So, so I, I know this, this exegetical approach to Revelation. I do. I know it. Uh, and I hope you'll follow with me today and just chew on the fact it may be a faulty reading. There's a, there's a more faithful reading. Now, that's just group number one. There's another group. Uh, there's the group called the ignorers. I call them the ignorers. A lot of times these are people who respond to the obsessors, right? So what they end up thinking is that, that revelation is just frustrating. It's kind of embarrassing, like how people are using it. It's this unsolvable enigma. So they make an even bigger mistake. They never read it at all. And to be clear, I think both groups are wrong. Uh, the ignorers and the crystal ballers and... Uh, if you want to understand exactly what Revelation is, it just te it tells you. It tells you in the first four verses. So let me show you. First four verses. Uh, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Let's, uh, let's read Revelation. 
Revelation 1, 1 through 4, John the Revelator introduces us uh, to this thing he's about to write here. Uh, John says, this is a, what's that word? A revelation, an apocalypsis from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants uh, the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. There's our author who faithfully reported everything he saw. Uh, This is the report. Uh, This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, Notice here, uh, God blesses uh, the one who what? So yeah, so reads the words of this what here? Prophecy. Prophecy to the church. And God also blesses all who what? Yeah, you listen to its message and obey what it says. For the time's near. And this, what's that word? Letter is from John to who? Seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Uh, So already in the introduction, we see that the first group's wrong, the ignorers. And some of you may have grew up in a church, some of you may have grown up in a church that was an obsessor church that, you know, like did the big timelines on the, you know, stage and like told you everything. Some of you grew up in an ignorer church that never preached it at all. And here's the sad reality. You're missing a blessing. A blessing straight from God if you don't read and listen to this word. I want to make sure our church doesn't miss that blessing. I do. But we also see that the crystal ball approach is mistaken. Uh, Because John shows us that Revelation is a blend of three literary types. Two of them we've already covered. What are they? Uh, One, an apocalypsis. We'll get to that. Two, uh, a prophecy. And uh, where's my third one? Three, a letter. And for you math-minded people here, uh, this is how I think it parses out. I think it's more prophecy than letter and more apocalypse than prophecy. But all three are folded in. Now, uh, the good news is you got two of these. If you've been with us in the Bible series, you got the letter and you got the prophecy. So do y'all remember we've been in letters for, for a few weeks now. Um, how do ancient letters work? Do you remember? It's, it's, like, it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. And if you listen closely to that one side of the phone conversation that you're getting, it'll give you lots of clues about who's on the other side of the phone and what sort of issues that they're facing. So... What about Revelation? Well, well, John tells us who's on the other side of the phone in verse 4. He said, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. These are seven real churches in the province of Asia Minor. I think this was written around A.D. 95, by the way, under the reign of Domitian. There was some localized persecution already happening against Christians. It's a fascinating but also terrifying time for them. Altogether, these seven churches uh, make up probably about 2,000 people. (coughs) The churches are named. There's the church in the city of Ephesus, the church in the city of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All these are are cities that are of relative importance, some of them more so than others. And uh, if you want to see them on a map, this is where they're located, uh, in Western Asia Minor. Here's Jerusalem uh, for uh, home base for you up. Here's Rome. Uh, We we talked about Corinth the other day. There's, There's Corinth and so on. Now, if you continue to read in Revelation 1, then 2, and 3, uh, 
what you'll see next is actually one of the largest, most significant chunks of Jesus's teaching in all the Bible. Did you know that there are red letters in Revelation? Uh, who's been reading this with us? Uh, and, okay, so great. A lot of you have been reading this in the Bible reading plan. There are red letters there. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus actually step, steps forward and speaks uh, to, to all seven of these churches individually, and he gives them a performance eval, a performance eval on how they're doing. He tells them encouraging things that they're doing well. He also gives them, a, what's the HR terminology? Some, some opportunities for growth. And he's, he's rather direct. This is not a comprehensive table of all the things he said. This is just an example of some of the things that Jesus says to each one of these churches. But what you'll see is he starts off with each church saying, I know this about you, and it's good. He encourages them in some way. I know that y'all are facing persecution. Antipas even gave himself as a martyr. I know that y'all are a faithful, unsoiled remnant, that y'all don't tolerate evildoers or false teachers up there in Ephesus. I know this about you. But then almost always he has these things against the churches. You've lost your first love. You're a lukewarm church. You've got false teaching and fornication everywhere. Interestingly enough, there's two churches that he didn't really say there's anything wrong with. So maybe we should look to them. Maybe, maybe we should try to restore Smyrna or Philadelphia. Too bad we don't have those letters in our Bible, right? But it's just an interesting section. And I think uh, it's a fantastic clue, another major indicator that Revelation wasn't written about us. Because why would we get three introductory chapters on the churches that the author says it is written to if the rest of the letter all of a sudden fast forwards to 2023 America? I think it sort of smacks of, 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 of modern arrogance for us to pretend like this book was somehow irrelevant to who the author says it was written for. So wait, Tyler, are you saying with all the stuff going on right now, like pandemics and natural disasters and war and evil superpower, you saying that Revelation isn't written to us? Are you serious? Well, okay, let me make the distinction here for you. This is so important. Um, I think Revelation was written for us, for us, but not to us. Do you see the distinction? All the Bible was written for us, it's a living word of God, right? Active, powerful, can change a life even still today. But it wasn't written to us. There's a difference. Plagues, wars, natural disasters, evil empires, by the way, they're as old as this letter. Again, there's, there's a certain sort of like uh, American narcissism for us to think, well, the last four years have been crazy around here with us and our allies. And, you know, so we got pandemics and wars and everything. So, so it must be revelation time because you see, if you read this letter globally with the global church, what many of them will tell you who are in poorer countries or are under unstable governments or don't have access to regular food or medicine or relief, what they'll tell you is that these things are their everyday reality, period. Not seasonal for them. So, okay, this is what I'm saying. We don't think Romans was written to us, do we? No, but it was for us. Oh, certainly, it was written to the Romans, but it's, it's for us. We can extract powerful truth from that and apply it to our lives today, can't we? We don't think 1 Corinthians or Philemon was, was written to us, do we? It was written to, Philemon was written to Philemon. Corinthians was written to the Corinth church, right? but we, cert, we do know that it was written for us because there are powerful truths we can extract and apply to our church today. It's the same with Revelation. John tells us, this ain't written to you, it's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, but, but there's stuff to be grabbed. Now, next question here. See that hand in the back? 
What was the message John wanted us to get then? Or uh, wanted them to get then? What was the message he was trying to give to these churches through a strange book like Revelation? Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Look, I'm, I know this, for some of you, this is already so disorienting. You've never heard this before. You were brought up in a certain way of reading Revelation. I'm just asking you, if you've been around here long, you know that I'm a, a Bible teacher that tries to stay faithful to the word. You know that. You, you know that I, I put in the work and try to do my very best study and bring it to you on Sunday mornings. I'm just asking and begging you. You don't have to, uh, you know, change your mind at the end of the day. Just keep an open mind here. Keep an open mind here and chew on this because I think there's a better reading. There's a more faithful reading. And, and this is it. This is it. This is what John's telling these churches. And he's telling this to us today too. He's saying, don't let the dragon and his minions compromise you or your church. Don't do it. And that's applicable, isn't it? Oh yeah. John basically paints a picture for us of this epic battle going on between good and evil. And it is still going on today. Believe that. It's a battle fought in the physical world that we can see when evil empires rise up, when there's war and hatred and famine and plague. We can see it with our own two eyes. It's also a battle that we can't see, though, that's happening in the spiritual world. You better believe that I believe in spiritual warfare. Experienced it, seen it. This battle is between two teams. As you read the book, the teams become clear. There's Team Dragon. Uh, and there's Team Lamb. And here's the good news. The outcome's already been decided according to Revelation. Team Lamb wins. So John says, don't let the dragon or the prostitute of Babylon or any of the other men, the beasts, don't let them seduce you because they're going down. Yeah, I see that hand over here. You guys don't usually ask questions. Go ahead. Um, yeah, Tyler. Uh, so, are you saying that? Uh, are you saying that there, there are like certain things that align with, with these graphic characters in Revelation? Well, yeah. In the first century, uh, some of these mapped onto their first century context. Uh, in in their, their book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, I think is what it's called, uh, Cody Matchett and Scott McKnight, two New Testament scholars, give a playbill for the book of Revelation uh, before they go into it. And I thought it's just so instructive. It's so helpful. They go deeper than this, but here's just some of the main characters, all right? Uh, again, there's Team Dragon and Team Land. The dragon is obviously Satan. Uh, he's also called, uh, what, what else is he called? The Ancient Serpent. Uh, and then, of course, there's the lamb, Jesus. There's Babylon, the city of Babylon. They call it the prostitute of Babylon, drunk off the blood of the innocent. And then there's the new Jerusalem, which is the future heavenly city. There's uh, beast number one, which I believe is like Caesar, the powers and rulers of the empire. And then there's the seven spirits. I believe it represents the Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of completion. There's beast number two, which I believe is the propaganda of the empire, the imperial worship uh, machine that, that just keeps spitting Roman propaganda out. And then, of course, there's the two witnesses, which are the witnessing church. There is a theme in Revelation that the church has to witness. It has to. By the way, you know what the Greek word is for witness? Martis, martis, which shows you the cost of witness sometimes, right? Martyr, martis. And then in, in Revelation 12, there's this interesting passage where, uh, where you see this depiction of a woman. I think Romans 12, or Revelation 12 is like, a, 
It's like one of the keys to the book because it lays out for you uh, in full the epic cosmic battle between good and evil. It kind of tells you the story because you watch as the woman morphs from Eve to the people of Israel, to Mary, to the church. You see how this battle is played out. Uh, so here's what I'm saying. Uh, Revelation falls more in the genre of epic fantasy. Maybe that will help some of you. How many of you like uh, fantasy literature, like you know, epic fantasy movies, sci-fi, that sort of stuff? Like I like some of that stuff. Um, Revelation is more like Marvel. It's, uh, it's Black Panther. It's, uh, it's the Lord of the Rings. It is. It is. Because when you watch the Lord of the Rings, you see this, this epic cosmic battle between good and evil laid out on the stage of Middle Earth. And quickly you, you start seeing some of the characters and their relationships and their epic journeys and how they can map on your life. You start seeing these moments where, where good and evil collide and the heroes are shown and the villains are shown. You watch as evil is given a face and evil is given a name. Well, sort of a face, right? This is exactly how Revelation operates. Now, as you read, what you'll see is that team dragon's behind all the evil. Team dragon is animating all of the minions. You almost start to feel sorry for Rome and the beasts and all this because it's the dragon who's driving them. And you see team lamb is behind all the goods and he's got his squad too. Team dragon has a very specific warfare strategy. It's violence. Deception, dominance, coercive power. If you ever get the sense from a leader that this is what's driving their leadership, the dragon's behind them. Team Lamb also has a warfare strategy and his strategy is cross-shaped self-sacrificial love we see of Jesus. It's the truth of the gospel, the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony, right? And it's also the faithful perseverance of the church. And once again, here's the good news. John keeps saying it over and over. Team Lamb is going to win. Trust me, he says. That's John's plea in Revelation. Now, this brings us to our next literary type. Uh, you guys still with me here? Do you guys, is, is it all enjoyable for you? Do you, okay, we can, okay, we keep going. We're going to keep going. Um, all right, so we've got letter. Uh, let's, do, let's do prophecy. Now, again, if you're here, here in May, we did Isaiah? Did we do Isaiah or Jeremiah? We did Isaiah. I'm pretty sure it was Isaiah this morning, but then I started thinking, I was like, maybe it's Jeremiah. And no, it was Isaiah. We did Isaiah. I'll just, we'll just go with it. And uh, when we did Isaiah, I taught you how to read prophecy. So uh, here were some of the rules for those of you who, who, who need reminding. Uh, first, if you remember, when you're reading prophetic literature, you've got to remind yourself, prophets are not primarily future tellers. They do some of that, but most of what the prophets do fall on this bullet down here, which we'll get to in a second. And that's Revelation. It does some future telling, but not a lot. Prophets also use lots of poetry and evocative imagery, which again is a big yep for Revelation. In fact, you'll miss the point if you try and read all of it literally. If you turn poetry into prose, what does it do to it? It ruins it. 
It ruins it. Because poetry was meant to do something different than communicate to you literal historical information. Poetry is trying to evoke an emotion from you. It wants you to read and ponder, read and ponder, read and ponder, and then feel it. Feel the impact of the images. Mull over it. Let them seep into you at an emotional level even. That's Revelation. We also find that uh, prophets, um, well, they're not chronological. I mean, speaking of Isaiah and Jeremiah, go read them. It's so confusing because you're like, where are we on the timeline now? Because they're just jerking you forward and backwards. And you're like, I can't, I can't keep, keep my head around this. It's the same with Revelation. It's not giving you a chronological run. It's like, a, it's like an orchestral build. You know, bah, bah, bah. like you're building a chord. I think I did this with you with the prophets. I'm not sure. Um, uh, you remember that game you used to do in uh, the rain game in kindergarten? Okay, so everybody over here, it's a little leg patch, a little leg pack. Come on, come on. Everybody right here, give me a little snaps. Yeah. Everyone uh, over here, uh, give, me, uh, give me a golf clap. Yeah. Just enjoy the zen. Yeah, so that's, this is how Revelation works. Thank you for playing my radiant games. Uh, this, is how, this, is how, this is how it works, right? It builds into a beautiful harmony rather than runs through a, a straightforward chronological timeline. Now, this next one's important. This might be the most important one on the slide right here. Uh, prophecy, every one of the prophets expect this. John, the revelator, more so than the prophets, expects you to know the baseline of the scripture story up to that point. The prophets expect you to know all the Old Testament stuff that happened before them because they draw on it. John expects you to know all the Old Testament and the gospels or else some of the meaning will just evade you. You'll miss the beauty of it. I'll give you an example. Uh, so why are the two, two of the main villains called uh, the serpent and Babylon? Why, Old Testament nerds? Who's the serpent? It's Satan, and we see him step onto the cosmic battle between good and evil in Genesis 2 and 3. Who's Babylon? It's the evil empire that sweeps in, tears down the temple of Solomon to the ground. Talk about a historic moment for the people. And then takes Daniel and a bunch of the other uh, Jewish leadership off into slavery, into exile. This is a big moment, right? Why would you name Rome Babylon? Why would you name the same devil that's, that's working then the, the, the serpent? Because he's trying to make connections for you. If you know the Old Testament, you won't miss those. Okay, let me say it like this. Uh, um, uh, just a couple weeks ago, me and my wife, Lindsay, went to see the Broadway show Wicked when it was in town. Uh, raise your hand if you ever seen Wicked. Yeah, you like it? Yeah, so uh, Lindsay, Lindsay loves it. Pray for my wife. She has an idolatrous obsession with the Wizard of Oz. You laugh. She's about to be Dorothy for Halloween. No, excuse me. Is it Dorothy? Yeah, she's about to be Dorothy for Halloween. Again. For the third time since we've been married. And that doesn't count the years she's been Glinda. Okay, so anyways, we went and saw a Wicked. I've seen it twice. She's seen it more than that now. Um, it's fine. It's not, you know, Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, come on. It's not, it's not Les Mis, but it's fine. Um, and, uh, and here's what you'll find. If you go to Wicked, you watch that show, what you're going to figure out quick is that you will have no idea what's going on in Wicked if you don't know the story of Wizard of Oz. And so it is with Revelation and the Old Testament and the Gospels. You got to know it if you want to know what's up. 
You gotta know what's happened before in the storyline. The better you know it, the more revelation jumps off the pages. Last, there are three big keys in prophecy. We talked about this in May. Uh, Prophets call out sin. They call for repentance and they're very direct when they call out sin, right? But there's always, if you notice, there's almost always hope in prophetic oracles. They're like, "This this is what you're doing wrong and you're going down, right? but you could still repent. That's, that's the prophets. And then they pronounce judgment and hope, which is oftentimes two sides of the same coin. And man, is that ever revelation. In fact, that's what I believe is going on uh, when you get to like uh, the parts of revelation where you get the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. You know, the, the three sets of seven. This is the, the structure of revelation is like six seals, an interlude, and then the seventh. Six bowls, an interlude, and then the seventh. Six trumpets, an interlude, and then the seventh, right? They're supposed to be seen harmonic, and they're all, they're all judgments of God poured out on the oppressive empire as a call out of sin and a plea for repentance. At least the first six of each are. That's how these work. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but I find it fascinating. Have you ever noticed how a lot of these, uh, these judgments that are poured out map onto Egypt and the Exodus? Again, another Old Testament indicator for you. We've got hail, we've got blood, we've got sores, darkness, locusts, death. Interesting. This is an Old Testament signal though. It's a signal to the reader that something similar is happening here. The most high God is bringing the evil powers to their knees. And the hope is that they will repent. But sadly, uh, when you read Revelation, they don't, at least not all of them. It says the people who did not die in these plagues still refuse to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continue to worship demons and idols, uh, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they didn't repent. There it is, they did not repent. That's hell right there, by the way, to have that sort of judgment, those sort of consequences poured out on your life and you still don't repent. You just can't turn from it. It sounds like addiction to me. Hmm. Okay, so you got letters, right? Revelation's a letter, we've seen that. Uh, Revelation's a prophecy. Here's our last one. Then we're going to church. Uh, Revelation's also an apocalypse. It's an apocalypse. I think it's more so an apocalypse than anything else. Uh, now, Tyler, what's an apocalypse? Well, first you should know that it's a Greek word, apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu, right? Apocalypsis of or from Jesus Christ. And notice it's the very first word in the Greek text. I don't think that's on accident. John's making a genre statement here. A literary type statement. Don't miss it. This is an apocalypse. Now, um, apocalypse, the word means something different then than it does today. If you were to take the, the definition of an apocalypsis from a first century Greek dictionary and compare it to a 21st century English dictionary, uh, it d- doesn't map. Okay, an apocalypsis was not like an Armageddon crystal ball prediction about the end of the world. No, it just meant to reveal. That's what the word means, to reveal, to disclose, to unveil. Go look at it, go, go look at the BDAG, all right? Go pull your Greek dictionary off the shelf and check it out. It'll show you that it just means to unveil, 
to like pull the curtains back on reality. So um, a clearer translation for us today may be this. Revelation is an unveiling of reality from Jesus Christ. He's about to show you what's really going on from the divine perspective. Now, it's, so many of you know that, that I'm a nerd. When I, when I went to school, um, my concentration was biblical studies, uh, mostly Greek. So uh, for my MDiv of my 90-hour degree, 30 of those hours, a third of the degree was spent in the Greek text. Um, I had to learn it. We, did, we studied Revelation, had to translate whole books. Um, and, uh, and then we had this class called Second Temple Judaism. Do you know what Second Temple Judaism is? It's one of my favorite classes. Second Temple Judaism is the period in Jewish history of the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple. It got tore down by who? I already told you, the Babylonians. And it got rebuilt by, you know, Nehemiah and the gang. It wasn't that great. Herod the Great comes along, first century BC. He does some renovations on it. So the second temple time though is important because it shows you the world that Jesus inhabited. You can understand the culture, what was important to them if you understand second temple Judaism. And in this class, there were four main segments that the professor taught us about. He said, if you can understand these four things, you can understand the mind of a first century person living in this world. And one of those four segments was apocalypticism. So in this class, I had to read lots of apocalyptic literature, revelation, but also other literature that's not in the Bible, but that was circulating at that time. Did you know that there was lots of apocalyptic literature published in, from 200 BC to 200 AD? Texts like Book of Enoch, Apocalypse of Abraham, Apocalypse of Adam, Apocalypse of Elijah, 2nd and 3rd Baruch, 2nd uh, Ezra, or 4th fourth, fourth Ezra, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, and of course, Revelation. And as I was forced, forced to read all these things, uh, here's what I started to notice. I was like, wow, these all sound like Revelation. This is a style. And whenever there's a style, there are rules to that style. Letters have different rules than histories, have different rules than prophecies, have different rules than apocalypses. So I wanna show you the three rules, not the only three, but three of the more important things to understand about apocalyptic literature from reading a bunch of it. Uh, first, uh, you should know that apocalyptic literature was resistance literature. It was politically subversive on purpose. Uh, for people who say that uh, the politics have no place in the church, you've never read Revelation for what it's worth. Apocalyptic literature is written from the perspective usually of the oppressed. This is what the early Christians were experiencing. And it was written to call out power. For John, the call out was on the dragon and the beasts, Satan and Rome. Uh, here's the second thing to know about it. Apocalyptic literature was metaphorical and symbolic metaphorical and symbolic, uses evocative imagery. So uh, let me show you a painting. Uh, does anyone know uh, what, what this painting is? It's a Picasso. Do you know what it's called? A famous one. It's called Guernica. Guernica. Uh, Guernica was a town bombed by the Nazis. Picasso painted this, finished it in 1937 during the height of Nazi power, and then he like toured the world with it. Now, uh, I'm gonna hold it there on the side screen for a second because I want you to look at it. I want you to look at this painting and just try to take it in. Town bombed by the Nazis, all right? This is what you're looking at, take it in. See, if you look at it, you'll see that Picasso is clearly making a statement about a historical event, clearly, but through graphic art. 
This is so much like apocalyptic literature. You, you can't interpret it in a literal way though. You miss the point if you say, well, let's decode it. Who's the bull? And there's three scratches on that guy's hand and wh whatever, right? Like, no, to get the point of it, you just have to let the images impact you. And when you do, the painting actually communicates to you more than a literal photograph ever could. It captures the horror. It captures the pain. It captures the diabolical nature of this awful event and the evil empire behind it. So maybe we should just call John Picasso. Picasso John. Because this is what he's doing throughout Revelation. In fact, I would suggest to you that Revelation 17 and 18 are his Guernica. Where he introduces you to the prostitute of Babylon and shows you all the evil things about her. And if you just read and ponder, read and ponder, read and ponder these chapters over and over, you start to see that there are some characteristics that emerge of an evil empire. They're idolatrous. Babylon, okay, ancient Rome was totally anti-God. Everywhere you went, you were uh, asked to offer sacrifice. Imagine if uh, in your national anthem, there was a uh, acknowledgement of the divinity of our president in it. Would that bother you? Uh, imagine if every time you had to go to the hospital, you had to offer a sacrifice to a, a, the God Asclepius of medicine. Would that bother you? Imagine if you couldn't go to an HOA meeting or a business meeting without having to offer sacrifice to the pantheon of gods. Imagine if you couldn't go to your friend's house and, and eat dinner without having to offer sacrifices to their household idols. Like, just imagine this, right? This was the world the Christians were, were living in and they had one God and they were trying to post a resistance, but it's hard in Rome. They were idolatrous, they were opulent, they were murderous. They called their murderous regime the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Isn't that interesting? They called their murder peace. Empires are good at this though. That's where the image consciousness, the propaganda machine comes in. The Pax Romana was basically this. Uh, keep the peace on our terms or we'll kill you. There you have it. They were militaristic, they were economically exploitative. Basically, if the Roman Empire didn't have some good that they wanted and you did, guess what they'd do? They'd come conquer your land and take it back. Of course, there's a certain amount of arrogance when you operate and rule like that and there was an incredible amount of image consciousness. So Rome was a propaganda machine. So look, this is the religious and political context of the churches. This is the dumpster fire they're living through. This is the environment they had to, to hold on to faith in as a powerless minority. Which brings us to our last aspect here of apocalyptic literature. The goal of it was to what? It was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. It was to uh, encourage the oppressors to repent, but also encourage the victims to hang in there. It was meant to encourage hope through suffering, peace through injustice, courage through oppression, perseverance through pain, holiness through corruption. One of the best modern commentaries on Revelation was written by uh, a scholar named Brian Blount. Brian Blount, fantastic uh, scholar. I have this on my shelf. And uh, Blount uh, then wrote a more popular level of his commentary where he read, uh, revolution, uh, read Rev Revelation through the history of his people, the African-Americans, the Af African-American experience. And I'm going to tell you what, when you read Revelation from the perspective of an oppressed, powerless minority, it just, it just hits different. It slaps, really. You start to see how this subversive book is able to actually encourage a people who were being crushed. 
So all that being said, let me give you your interpretive key. Tyler, this has been a lot summarized for me. Let me summarize it for you. And I saved this till the end because I didn't think you'd understand it at the beginning, but now you'll understand it. Here's the interpretive key. This is what Revelation is. Revelation was a prophetic letter. You know what that means. Written to seven ancient churches. You know who they are. In apocalyptic style. You know what that is. About how to persevere suffering and resist compromise in a Roman empire animated by Satan. That's Revelation. And let's go to church, y'all. While we may not live in Rome, you and I both know Babylon is still alive and well today, isn't it? The dragon is still out for blood. So I'll say to you today, what John said to the churches then, we gotta persevere, saints. We gotta persevere. And we gotta resist the evil around us. We gotta persevere. I know some of y'all are weary I know it, but don't you worry. The lamb is gonna do it. He's gonna do it. There is a part of Revelation that's about the future. It's 19 through 22, the last four chapters. 19 and 20 are about the defeat of Satan and the victory song of the lamb. And 21 and 22 are about the new heavens and the new earth where earth and heaven collide in this beautiful garden. No city, no marriage, no temple, right? It's just beautiful, it's beautiful. Revelation 21.4, John says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. So hold on, saints, persevere. The lamb is gonna do it. You know what Revelation really is? Revelation is a story of the corrupt power people and power systems getting exactly what they deserve, finally. It exposes evil for what it is. It shows us exactly where evil comes from. And then it tells evil to go to hell. It's the story of how God has put all the dragons and all the beasts and all the rulers out there drunk on the blood of the innocent on notice. So all you tyrants out there, you've been put on notice. All those who use others, you've been put on notice. All those enriching yourselves at others' expense, all you haters and hate mongers, all you liars, cheaters, and thieves, all you who want nothing more than to fight your way to the top and you don't care who you crush on the way up, you've been put on notice. All of you who are indifferent to the systems and injustices around you, unmoved by the dying masses, you've been put on notice. The king is coming. Justice will have the final word. And in that moment, the last will be first and the first will be last. Praise God. The least will be greatest and the greatest will be least. In that moment, the oppressed will get their comfort. The sick will get their healing. The prisoners will get their freedom. The martyrs will get their reward. And those marked by the beast will fall while those sealed by the lamb will rise. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, No more pain, no more poverty, no more hunger, no more famines or food deserts, no more racism, no more sexism, no more culture wars because every nation, tribe, and tongue will be together. There will be no more war, no more refugees, no more tanks, bombs, or guns, no more school shootings, no more bullies, no more acts of terror done in the name of God. There will be no more night, just the light of the presence of God. 
There will be no more addictions, no more ODs, no more recovery centers, 12-step groups, prisons, or halfway houses. No more human trafficking, rape, abuse, or hashtag me too's. No more sweeping evil under the rug or just hushing it into the closet. Gone. There will be no more suicide, no more mental illness, no more anxiety, no more depression or need for medication. There will be no more ambulances or hospitals or handicapped parking spaces. No more cancer wars or chemo. No more blindness or deafness. There will be no more victims of the system or corrupt politicians or untouchable CEOs. In fact, no one will care anymore about return on investment or profit margins or balance sheets or cash flow because none of that will matter anymore. All these evil things will be gone forever. The world in all of its irredeemable evil will catch fire and from the ashes, a new world will emerge. And in that world, the powerful won't rule. Don't get it twisted. The corrupt won't rule. The charismatic won't rule. The rich won't rule. The president won't rule. America won't rule. Love will rule. And love has a name. And his name is Jesus. And he'll take his bride by the arm and we will live happily ever after. This is the revelation evaluation of life. The future will be heaven. The present can be hell. Persevere, saints. Persevere because reward is on the horizon. But don't just persevere, he says, resist. We must persevere and resist, right? Don't take the mark of the beast, John says. Take the mark of the lamb. Real quick, I got good news for you. You're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. Nobody's going to force that on you. The government's not going to hold you down. And you're like, I live my life for Jesus. Take it, barcode, whatever, right? It's not going to happen like that. That's the good news. Nobody's going to force you. Now, here's the bad news, though. Uh, there are two marks you can take, the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. And, uh, and you already have chosen one. You choose it every day. In Revelation 14, it says, uh, the beast required everyone to be given a mark on the right hand or on their forehead. By the way, if you know the Old Testament, that's where they wrote the law. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call back, flashback to the Shema, one of their core prayers. It says, uh, it required everyone to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark. So what marks the mark of the beast? Well, it's worship of the beast, really fear of the beast. Not worship, it's fear. And a desire for prosperity. Do you see it? What about the lamb? It says, then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him were 144,000 who had his name written on their foreheads. And what, what's distinct about it? They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the lamb wherever he goes. So what marks those marked with the lamb? Their purity and their commitment to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, I want you to take that in for a second. You should take it in. Let me ask you, which marks you? Are you marked by the way of the lamb or the way of our cultural moment? The way of America, the way of the empire, if you will. You marked by its greed? You marked by its relentless pursuit for more and better? You marked by its image consciousness, its selfie-obsessed narcissism. You marked by its bent towards bullying and dominating enemy, its standards of morality, its obsession with platform, its vision for purpose and meaning and identity and sex and politics. Or are you marked by the lamb? What marks you? 
This is what John's asking us. Where has Babylon seeped into your church or seeped into your life? WWBD or WWJD? What marks you? I want you, I just think about this week. I want you to think about the guts and the hope the early church had to have. Think about this. There's about 2,000 of them in the corner of Asia. That's not even as big as our church, this church. Yet in their mind, they're gonna rule the world someday. They're gonna bring the empire down and take it over. They're gonna lead myriads of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue out of the chains of the beast and into the freedom of the lamb. And how? Their faithful witness, their resistance against the beast and the dragon. That's it. Think about that, the brashness of it. The nerve, the holy, the holy pride, the chutzpah. Man, this would have sounded insane in the first century. Yet fast forward 2000 years later and the revelation vision can already be seen in this room. Look around. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, language, standing in front of the throne before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes, held palm branches in their hand. And what were they shouting church? Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. Praise God. Our spiritual ancestors had vision, vision. Do we? Against all the odds, the Lamb's way would prevail. Do we have that vision? Do we have that sort of powerful confidence? Do we believe that a faithful public witness could accomplish that much? Or are we too scared to stand, too scared to evangelize? Do we believe that Jesus' way is the way to the truth and life? Or do we secretly think the dragon has something better to offer? I'll go ahead and tell you, life may be good with the dragon for a moment, temporarily, but he ain't your friend. Eventually, life will show you. It will show you just how empty his promises are. I'm telling you, it'll show you. You'll feel the poison coursing through your vein. His intentions for you ain't good. You'll hit rock bottom. You'll come to the end of your rope. You'll find yourself emotionally sick, financially spent, mentally drained, relationally wrecked. Do you feel that today? Do you feel lifeless? Do you feel unlovable, sad, desperate, shame? I'm gonna tell you, underneath, underneath those feelings, there's an invitation. The lamb is whispering an invitation to freedom, a promise of victory. Life will eventually expose the dragon, but love will eventually defeat him. And you can taste that victory today, but you gotta let go of the beast and follow the lamb. So I'm gonna welcome everybody to stand up right now. It's one thing I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, but the rugs are getting kind of dusty. They're getting dusty. So to close today, we're going to sing the Revelation song. Throwback. We're gonna sing the Revelation song. And this would be my encouragement. I'm gonna welcome everyone right now to sing. And if today you believe he's worthy, I wanna invite you as we sing to come to the rugs and tell him that. Or if you need freedom from the beast, this is your moment. Come hit your knees on the rugs, give your heart to the lamb. He wants it, he thinks you're worthy. Let's tell him how worthy he is to us. Thank you.